You are listening to an Ancient Future episode of the St. Benedict's Table podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Howison. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Jerry Bowler, an historian with a doctorate from King's College London and a long teaching record at the university level in the area of medieval and early modern European history, a man with a formidable mind and rather a passion for debate Jerry's face lights up like the proverbial Christmas tree when invited to speak about that particular season of the year. Having written three books on the topic, The World Encyclopedia of Christmas, Santa Claus, A Biography, and most recently, Christmas in the Crosshairs, Jerry has also served as editor of a collection called The World's Greatest Christmas Stories. With the 12 days of Christmas on the very near horizon, It seemed a good time to sit down with Jerry to talk about this season which so fills him with delight. Jerry Bowler, welcome to our show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Good thing. Your 2017 book, Christmas in the Crosshairs was the third Christmas book you published after the World Encyclopedia of Christmas in 2000, Santa Claus, a biography in 2005. To this, you've since added a collection called The World's Greatest Christmas Stories. Now, that's a lot of Christmas for an academic historian whose area of teaching has been in medieval and early modern European history. What is that particular passion about? In the 1990s, I was a semi-employed historian. Not having tenure, I had to teach at a number of uh, places like the university and the Nazarene College and uh, for the Mennonite Brethren and stuff. So I was a bit outside of the academic uh, rules, which allowed me to be a bit more flexible about choosing a specialty. My specialty to that time had been 16th century political theory, particularly the right to kill your ruler, for religious reasons, which you take to a party and nobody wants to talk about. So I was asked, actually, at a Christmas party to bring a little historical Christmas quiz, which I did, and it turned into, after 10 years of research, uh, the World Encyclopedia of Christmas. So since the 90s, it has been my um, delightful obsession to read about Christmas every day. This is one house on the block that you'll likely hear Christmas carols every day of the year. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful topic full of history and lore and magic and food and music and politics. You could spend lifetimes trying to plumb its depths. And personally for you, I mean, there's, that gives a picture certainly of, 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 of why your passion got caught, but it's you you could be passionate about other things that would have all kinds of, of, of depth and breadth to them, but there's something about this season that speaks to your heart as well as your mind. Absolutely, and I think it's the speaking to the heart that has made Christmas uh, a global phenomenon. It, there's, there's just nothing like it in the world. There's nothing like it in history. A whole month out of the year in which people expect magic. They expect to be, at some point, surprised and delighted, and they expect themselves and others around them 
to act better. Come on, it's Christmas. Mm. You know, you hear that every day as people are urged to better behavior, whether they're religious or not, whether they're Christian or not, they think there is something special about this season. And to dwell in that orb is, is a wonderful thing. Now, the subtitle of Christmas in the Crosshairs is 2,000 Years of Denouncing and Defending the World's Most Celebrated Holiday. As I read the book over the course of a very pleasant weekend a few weeks ago, it struck me that over the centuries, the denunciations seemed to outweigh the defenses, at least as you presented in the book. Would that be fair? I think they're pretty balanced. This book arose out of an article, a short article, in the Christmas Encyclopedia on opposition to Christmas, which I thought at that time had largely to do with uh, Calvinist objections in the 16th and 17th centuries. But then in the early 21st century, the Christmas wars really erupted, and people began to have all kinds of opinions about it. And the one that got up my nose the quickest was, there's no such thing as a war on Christmas. Well, um, as it turned out, there, there has been a 2,000-year-old war on Christmas, and very often it's waged, uh, raged by, uh, by Christians. So that was my job, uh, to spend a number of years examining all the debates and tussles and uh, sometimes life-or-death struggles over whether or not we should be celebrating the nativity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, I long worked with the assumption that much of what we associate with Christmas, the tree, the evergreens, holly, wreaths, and its placement close to the winter solstice. Uh, I'd worked with the assumption that that largely came to us from Northern Europe during the early Middle Ages. In reading your book, I was rather surprised that that isn't narrowly the case. Can you tell our listeners something about the dating of the holiday? Yes, uh, there's been an enormous debate um, that I think finally has been, no, I don't think it has been won, but it, it's still going on, though the um, balance of scholarly opinion is shifting away from the long-held notion that December 25th was chosen in order either to deliberately counter the pagan holidays at midwinter or to slip in um, unbeknownst to the larger pagan society. I mean, that seemed like such a good answer, that Christmas, uh, the nativity, was going to be uh, the Christian rebuttal to Saturnalia and Brumalia and the birthday of Mithra and uh, the calends of January or, or the Roman New Year. As it turns out, uh, that's just dead wrong. Uh, since um, the 80s and 90s, scholars have poo-pooed the connection to Roman holidays and began to posit what's called the calculation theory, which says that December 25th was chosen by the early church out of a set of arcane calculations that would seem very strange to the modern mind, but would make perfect sense in the 3rd century. The first thing you have to understand is that there was a belief in the ancient world that great men were born and died on the same date. So Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, Jesus of Nazareth were expected to have a birthday and a death day 
on the same date. Now, we can pretty closely uh, figure out uh, the death date of Jesus. Obviously, it's connected uh, to the springtime and, uh, and Passover. So why are we not celebrating uh, the Nativity um, in late March? Because we view the conception of Jesus, uh, the Annunciation of Mary's pregnancy uh, by the angel, which the church established as March 25th to be the beginning of the nine months. So nine months after March 25th gives us December 25th. And then we also have calculations based on how old in the womb John the Baptist was when <laughs> Mary uh, visited Elizabeth. And uh, those calculations are often derived from the term of John the Baptist's father's tribe serving in the temple. Uh, people are still getting up to that calculation of the tribal rota. And then there's also the words of John the Baptist who said of Jesus that he must increase and I must decrease. And this was taken to mean a connection to the two solstices, John's birthday, uh, St. John the Baptist's day, close to midsummer, and Jesus close to midwinter. Plus the claim by the Roman church in the 300s that they actually had Jesus's, not so much birth certificate as Joseph's tax registration certificate. A claim, um, which I think is a bit hard to defend, but which was a real deal clincher back in the 300s. I would imagine. <laughs> and a little hard to claim now. A little hard now, but it took the Roman church and the church in the West and North Africa that had picked the December 25th date decades, and in some cases centuries, to persuade um, the Eastern church to come on over from January the 6th. The January the 6th date is based on the same set of calculations, but a different dating of Easter. So it's the same nine-month um, calculation. Uh, one by one, the churches came over to December 25th, except Armenia, which today, still 2,000 years later, clings to uh, January 6th as the Nativity. In, in the Northern Hemisphere, there's surely some particular appeal to having a, a festival of light and food and, and feasting and family and community at the darkest time of the year. Is that so a happy accident, you're saying? Or God's cleverness, I would think, is <laughs> amazing tact on that point. Let's remember that every culture that lives in a temperate zone, every culture that has seasons, always has a midwinter festival that involves three things, as you mentioned, uh, heat and light, greenery, and plenty. Uh, because in the pre-modern world, this is the only time of the year where there is abundance. Uh, the harvest is in, it's been baked into uh, breads and cakes and pies uh, and brewed into beer. Uh, the grapes are into wine. The, uh, the livestock that you can't winter over have been slaughtered and made into sausages. Uh, the eel pens and the fish pens have been cleaned out. So now you've got that food, and without modern refrigeration, you have to eat it. So this is going to be, whether you like it or not, a time of festivity. The same is true with light and heat. This is the darkest time of the year. You want to be reminded that the sun is coming again. Greenery, you want to be reminded that springtime is, is there uh, in the future. So it's not coincidental, I think, that the early church 
put it there and, and made of those symbols over the centuries the same kind of delight and use that uh, non-Christian societies would use. This is a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, an Anglican church in Winnipeg, Canada. Find out more about us at www.stpedinxtable.ca. Now, for all the careful research and equally careful writing, there is a playfulness to this book. Allow me to offer a small sample. The second line of Puritan attack was always to bring up the bad behavior of Christmas celebration, dicing, carding, sexual incontinence, drunkenness, transvestism, dancing, gluttony, riot, cats and dogs living together. Now, are you just trying to see if your readers are paying attention, or is that a little jab at Puritan earnestness? It is. I take several jabs at, at Puritan earnestness. I think if you can't be happy about the birth of the baby Jesus, you're in the wrong religion. And the Puritans are more fun than you think. They are, after all, the people that made an exception to prohibitions on um, uh, drinking on the Sabbath uh, to ensure that in cases of emergency, you could go to the pub on Sunday. It's a 16th century joke. Um, but really, uh, they're very, very sober. And in fact, you'll catch some of them saying that Jesus never laughed and, and therefore we shouldn't be, uh, be mirthful. Uh, my hero in all this is the great enemy of the Puritans, King James I of Scotland, who said that we have a right to be merry. And uh, that's, that's one of the things I'm trying to say in the book. And is it a sort of earnestness that's at work amongst those you characterize as the privatizers and suggest are, are largely trying to drive religion from the public square? Yes, uh, that's part of the contemporary war on Christmas. Mm -hmm. um, they, they claim that it's, it's a matter of inclusiveness, which is a bit hilarious, since you can't be inclusive by excluding the majority culture. And there's hypocrisy involved there, too. What they claim to want is uh, an even playing field for all religions. Uh, but in fact, what they want is no religion in the public square. And they're as, as adamant about uh, menorahs being in airports and so on uh, as they are about nativity scenes in front of the town hall. And what about the, uh, the buy-nothing Christmas folks? Is there an earnestness at work there as well? There is. God bless them. In those earnest Christian people, largely of Mennonite stock, there is a confusion between Lent and Christmas. We don't have to suffer all year. We don't have to be restrained all year. Uh, one of the joys of uh, liturgical uh, denominations is the recognition that there are highs and lows, peaks and valleys, feasts and fasts in the Christmas year. And it's a regrettable outcome of some brands of Protestantism that every day is exactly like the one before. I used to counter this when I, uh, or try to counter it when I taught at Christian colleges. Here, just in, in one example, kids would come to chapel uh, with their baseball hats on, 
or, or their, their basketball shorts on, or, or they would be in my classroom with their baseball caps on. And I would say, take your darn caps off. Something sacred is going on here. There's learning going on here. There's worship in the chapel. Things are sometimes different. Different times of the year, different times of day. Our postures, our attitudes, we change. This, this homogenization, this flattening of time uh, has to be countered. If you could uh, give counsel to a gathering of clergy, let's say, for instance, the bishop and clergy of this particular Anglican diocese, if you could give counsel to us regarding how we might approach and celebrate Christmastide as individual congregations and as diocese, what might you have to say to us? I would say, first of all, rejoice that we have the birth of the baby Jesus to celebrate, and let's make sure that it's a celebration. There are two things I would like you to omit in the month of December, or, or at least to temper. The first is, don't tell us how Christmas is going to affect climate change. Secondly, play some Christmas music in the church, sing Christmas carols during the Advent season. There are simply, I, I understand the liturgical seasons, I understand that Advent is separate, a uh, separate uh, subunit of Christmas, but there is not enough good Advent music to fill in those four weeks. And it takes people aback when they discover that they can't sing a Christmas carol until Christmas Eve. So please, Bishop Jeff, heed my words. <laughs> You'll have a bit of a hard time convincing this interviewer, I'm afraid. But perhaps <laughs> it's, a, it's a case of challenging our musicians to begin to write better Advent music. Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, I love Come, O Come, Emmanuel, um, but it's a short list after that. <laughs> Jerry Bowler, thank you very much. Entirely my pleasure. This has been an ancient future episode of the St. Benedict's Table podcast. If you want to comment on this show or find out more about Jerry Bowler and his work, have a look at the show notes. I'm Jamie Howison. Thanks for listening, and do have a joyous Christmas season. Shall come to thee.